Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Friends, this is Janet Parshall. Thanks so much for choosing to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is pre-recorded, so our phone lines are not open. But thanks so much for being with us, and enjoy the broadcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely rare safety move by a major... 17 years, the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. If you listen to this program with any regularity, you know what our goal is, our agenda. I'll be crystal clear. It's to build you up and push you out. It's just that simple. To get out into the marketplace of ideas. To influence and occupy until he comes to let your light so shine before men. To seek the welfare of the city. To live such good lives among the pagans. The list goes on and on and on. But before you go out into the marketplace... You have to use, as Dwight L. Moody said, referring to the Word of God, the straight stick of truth. How else are you going to measure crooked ideas out there? And yet, truth be told, a lot of people who have followed Jesus Christ don't necessarily know what they believe, or more importantly, why they believe it. Now, when Craig and I were teaching a membership class in a church several years back, it was the decision of the leadership in the church, one I highly commend, that every person coming into the church as part of the membership class had to read Dr. Paul Little's book, Know What You Believe and Why You Believe It. And it was a superb way of building a foundation of faith. Before they became a part of the church body, they really needed to understand the cornerstones, if you will. Here's a 50-cent word, the Christian orthodoxy, the key principles of what we believe, but not just what we believe, why it is believable, why we believe it. And I would posit 
that in a post-truth world, and in case you didn't realize it, that's what you woke up to this morning, where good is called evil, evil is called good, people are doing what's right in their own eyes, everybody creates their own truth, the list goes on and on and on. You'd better know how to contend, thank you, Book of Jude, for the faith by knowing what you believe and why you believe it. So I am very excited about this conversation we are about to have, and I'll tell you why. I swim through a morass of new books that are published. I will say in full transparency, most of them land in the circular file because they're not worth platforming on national radio. They don't provide meat. They're not Christ-centric. They're not built on the ideas found in Scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. A lot of self-help stuff that masquerades under the banner of Christian publishing. So when I saw the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith, I thought, you know, that's why I don't have a problem being called a fundamentalist, because I want to go back to the fundamentals of the faith, knowing what I believe and why I believe it. So we're not only going to talk to Tom Rainer, who is the author of this book, and I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a minute, but I want to take your questions because we are going to go through the rudimentary base foundation of what we believe as Christians, hence the succinct title, I Believe. Now, to my formal introduction. Tom's been on our program before, and I'm grateful that he's back again. He is the founder and CEO of Church Answers. He's got about 40-plus years of ministry experience that he's been involved in. He is committed to the growth and health of the local church and its leaders. He's been a pastor of not one, but four churches, and an interim pastor of 10, as well as best-selling author, popular speaker, professor, dean. He's a grad of the University of Alabama. He got his master's and his Ph.D. from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written a whole bunch of books, including I Am a Christian, The Post-Quarantine Church, and others. So, Tom, I hope you got your walking shoes on, because we're going to cover a lot of territory. But let me start with thanks. Thanks for the gift of your time. I can't give it back. And thanks so much for writing this book. Well, Janet, you have honored me already with those words, just listening to you talk about getting those stack of books, and you pull this one out. So it is a true honor, and thank you for having me back on the show. Oh, it's a delight. Now, I'm going to ask a real rudimentary question, but if we're going to go back to the foundation, I want to start with the base level. Why do you think, particularly now in the 21st century, and particularly to people you're talking to all across the country, presumably the majority of which already knows Christ as their personal Savior, why go back to the basics? I believe, a guide to the essentials of the Christian faith. Why at this point in human history and in this point in the life of the church, is it paramount that you wrote a book about the essentials of the faith? There was a trigger point. There are, certain, there, there are a lot of cultural reasons I can do, and you articulated many of them just in the introduction where you said that so many Christians do not know why they believe, even what they believe. But there was a trigger point for me. We've been studying Christian beliefs in churches since 1996 in a, a boring statistical form. I won't even get into that. And here's what we found happening, Janet. Right around the year 2000 to 2001, again, about two decades ago, we began to see a shift. And it's these are church members who are surveyed. And these church members began to respond to the survey essentially disavowing John 14, 6. I am the way, mm. the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We saw that number keep increasing as, as well as others. And we said there is something going on here where people who call themselves Christians and church members are disavowing some of the cardinal truths of the faith. So that's part mm. one. Part two I work with a lot of pastors. My team works with a lot of pastors. And we began to be increasingly aware that these pastors were telling us, 
I have church members coming up to me and saying, I don't understand, and they're very basic questions. I don't understand why you say Jesus is the only way. I don't understand why you say the Bible is totally and completely true, and go on there. And they said, can we get something in our hands that we can give our church members so that they can get back to the fundamentals, to use your word, and this is a lot of our words, the fundamentals of the faith, because mm-hmm. that is what is happening. I think that it may be a sign of something good that there, there's, there's hunger there in the midst of all the cultural morass that we have been through. Oh, amen. I love your optimism. I, like you, want to look at that glass as half full. Let me just echo something that you said about stats. By the way, I'm in Washington. We love stats. That's all we do is talk stats, right, in this town. I got it. But I, I, think, got it. I think it's a tutorial, and it's a, I think it's a way of helping people understand the gravitas of this problem. I love Dr. George Barna. He teaches at Arizona Christian University. He leads the Cultural Research Center there. And because his name is synonymous with surveys, particularly of the church, I have watched his data incessantly for decades, and it is measurable to see the decline in the basics of the faith, that Jesus didn't, in fact, not live a sinless life, that the devil is really symbolic. He's not a real entity. They don't really understand the triune nature of God and what the Holy Spirit is. And all of that, by the way, is covered in your book. So if the, if the data is there that says, oops, These absolutely, and you use the word cardinal, perfect word in this, the cardinal beliefs, the orthodoxy of Christianity. If we are abandoning that, we do it at our own peril, but sometimes you have a hole in a brick wall, you go back and you remortar. And that's what your book is doing. It's remortaring. It's called I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith. It's not a big book, but it is an essential book. I am going to open the phone lines during the course of my conversation with Tom Rainer so that you can ask questions about basic Christian truths. Back after this. Who is God? Why am I here? How should I live? Could you find the answer to those crucial questions from God's Word? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Learn the essentials of our faith in a clear and succinct way. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to In the Market with Janet Partial.org. 877 that's our phone number. Your invitation to join in in our conversation. Questions only this hour on the basics of the faith. We have a superb teacher in Tom Rainer. He's the founder and CEO of Church Answers. Kind of speaks to what we're talking about, doesn't it? Many, many, many decades in ministry, pastored multiple churches, best-selling author, teacher, preacher, the list goes on and on and on. But he has a heart for the church. He really wants to grow the local church and church leadership. So it makes perfect sense that being an astute teacher, because he's listening with the ears on his heart, he understands that there's kind of kind of a shift in what we believe inside the church. And so that's why he wrote this book, which really just covers the I believes, the basic of the faith. So if you have a question, join us, 877-548-3675. Tom, I want to start where you do in the book, which is I believe in the Bible. I'm going to throw back a stat again. I told you we're a little crazy about them here in D.C. Sure. But we go back to George Barna's research at the Cultural Research Center. I I was uh, taken aback that a majority of Christians, when surveyed through his research, found that the Bible was uh, contained the word of God, but it isn't the word of God. Now, that's as big a chasm as the uh, Grand Canyon. So in other words, not Genesis 1 to the last sentence in the book of Revelation, all of that God-breathed, God-inspired, but it's a book that contains God's word as opposed to is God's word. 
A, what is the distinctive and why is one accurate and the other is not? Well, using big words again, that's the difference between orthodoxy and neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy mm-hmm. came up with a belief that said the Bible contains the Word of God. And simply that leaves room for error. Because when it contains the Word of God, instead of being the Word of God, there can be some parts in it that aren't the Word of God. And once you get on that slippery slope, you are falling fast. Uh, I actually went to a seminary many decades ago, a few decades ago anyway, where I was taught neo-orthodoxy. I was mm-hmm. taught that the Bible is true for what it contains, but I was not taught orthodoxy, that the Bible is totally without error, totally true. It is a slight nuance, but it makes an eternal difference when we look at it that way. Absolutely. Can I linger? Because I think this is huge, as do you, because this is the start of the list of the you believes, the I believes as we go through your book. So the the nuance difference between orthodoxy and neo-orthodoxy, very understandable words, is it leaves a margin of error in neo-orthodoxy, but it presupposes something else, which is who's the arbiter? Who is the... Mm, who are the oracles, let me put it that way, who get to decide this is and this isn't God-breathed. The minute we do that, we've moved our rank up to co-redeemer, a parallel with God. I mean, all of a sudden it opened, and I, I'm not afraid, by the way, I'm a great believer in an all-comers policy, and I love the idea of challenging ideas. But I would just say, if you believe that it is, there's a possibility for nuance or for errors here, who gets to make the decision as to what is and where is the nuance and what is the error? Doesn't that open up a Pandora's box? It does. And it becomes self-idolization. It becomes yes. making our own selves God. It becomes that we are equal to this God who is no longer a real God because we don't discern him or define him correctly. So the moment we start saying we know it's true or we're going to at least be an arbiter of what is truth, we have put ourselves in the position of the only one, God through his spirit, who can breathe the word of God. That's what inspired means, that God breathed it. And so when we begin to say it can be something other than that, once again, to, to just go back to the, the original thesis, we have opened up a chasm that cannot be jumped over. We have now declared that the Bible is in our image only instead of God's image. Mm, wow. You used an important word. You said that the Bible is inspired. Now, you can say, oh, that was an inspired um, uh, piece of art. That was an inspired um, uh, opera that I went to. But this has a profoundly distinct, different meaning. Explain why we say this is inspired. Well, it is the source of inspiration. It is mm. the breath of God. It is God who is doing the inspiring. If I write something that is inspiring, I might be fortunate enough to get on Janet Parshall's show. But that's, <laughs> you know, that, 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 that might be the end of my fortune. But if God, when God writes something that is inspired, it changes lives. And that's what the Word of God does. We know that. It cuts to the core of who we are. It exposes us, and it allows His Spirit to work in us. So when we say inspired and we say God-inspired or God-breathed, we're giving the authorship to the true author, capital A. Wow. Amen. We use the words alive and powerful. So I can read Moby Dick and say that was inspired. And boy, what a compelling story, particularly when you realize that Melville is writing about death and resurrection and pulling biblical images throughout the book. But again, a profound distinctive between that 
and the Word of God. So when we say it's alive, that's not, that's not a word we can apply to any other book in the history of publishing. What do we mean when we say it's alive? Well, we're saying that it is infused alive by the Holy Spirit, that when we read God's Word, His Spirit is working within us as He has worked within the Holy Scripture. And now, because it is alive, it becomes alive for our lives. It is not mm-hmm. something written just in antiquity, even though it has a firm historical basis. It is something that is written for us today that changes us You cannot change something with a dusty book. You can change something that is inspired and empowered and given power by God. So that aliveness, if you will, is God working in us through his word, through his spirit. You say the Bible is necessary. That seems to be a self-evident truth, maybe for some, but not for others. Why is it essential? Well, without, without the Bible, we have no Gadstone. Without the Bible, we do not know right from wrong. Without the Bible, we do not know the full characteristics of who God is. And certainly the Holy Spirit can give us insight, and certainly the Holy Spirit can guide us. But the Bible is necessary for us to have the kind of life that we have that God meant for us to have. And so I know in my own, my own personal time, I have skipped days reading the Bible more times than I want to count in my lifetime. And when I do that, I feel like I have missed a physical meal because the word that is alive has not come alive for me that particular day. Wow. Wow. So well said. Now, I'm going to give you all fair warning. There are several I believe statements in the book. I bow to the tyranny of the clock. You understand that. But if I've got you thinking about the basics of the faith, not just what you believe, but why you believe it, then I will have done my job. There's more even on I Believe the Bible as step number one. When we come back, let's look at some other I Believes. Also, we'll take your questions, 877-548-3675. Back after this. We are visiting with Tom Rayner, founder and CEO of Church Answers, a pastor for many, many years, also a best-selling author, a popular speaker, professor, dean, the list goes on and on. But his heart really is to grow the local church. And one of the ways you do that is making sure that the church is fed regularly. So we're talking about what we believe and why we believe it. And he's written a short, powerful book that flies over, if you will, the cornerstone beliefs that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. These used to be universally recognized and universally understood and applied. That's not where we're at right now. So going back and repairing the wall, if you will, redoing the foundation is essential. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. And Tom starts with this de- the statement, I believe in the Bible. Tom, fair warning. I'm not sure how far we're going to get if questions come up. You and I just <laughs> might have to have these conversations on a regular basis and cover a lot of this I love stuff. It. I love Good. It. Thank you. So let me go. Matt, you have a great question. Thank you for joining us from Florida. Your question, please. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, I was actually wondering who put the Bible together because, um, you know, I feel like some people more than doubting the Bible probably doubt uh, or could doubt its its origin uh, since, you know, it's a bunch of books put together. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Good question, Matt. Thank you for jumping in on this. You know, the God who created the world is a God can, who, who can put together a Bible. And a God who created me and you is the same God who can make sure that what he wants to be in the Bible stays in the Bible. 
What you're referring to, Matt, is a process called canonicity or the canon of Scripture. And it is how God led us, led people in the church, and took the Old Testament and the New Testament and took the books that were widely accepted in the church, widely embraced in the church, affirmed as real in the church for many, many years before it was finally accepted as these are the 66 books of the Bible. In many ways, Putting the books of the Bible together, putting the canon of Scripture, which means the whole of the whole of the Bible, was as much an act of the work of God as some of the the books of the Bible themselves, because God made sure that those books that were true, those books that had proven themselves as truth over the years, those were the books that got into it. There are a lot of there's a lot of literature out there, extra biblical literature that did not make it to the scripture because it did not stand the test of true spiritual strength. And so the books that we have today are really a testament, no pun intended with the Old and New Testament, <laughs> it's really a testament to God's work putting these books together and preserving them just like he gave us the individual books. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Matt. 877-548-3675. Keith, you are in Georgia. I thank you so for joining the conversation, and we'll take your question now, please. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, love your show, Janet. Listen to it every day on the way home from work. Um, I have a friend who has kind of gone along with what you were talking about, the neo uh, Bible or new, uh, where they're saying that parts are, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, where they're saying parts are, are true and parts are, are not necessarily. And, and what I said to him was almost verbatim what you just said that I believe that a God who put the earth in space, uh, at exactly the right place and the right angle that we don't, uh, we don't burn up or freeze. Uh, could make sure that the Bible has what it's supposed to have in it. But his 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 thoughts are, what about uh, uh, discrepancies or uh, where where in the Old Testament God said, you know, to to whoever you know, destroy them all, kill the men, women, and children, and then Jesus says, you know, I I say, uh, love your enemy. So what do I say to him about the 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 differences and and what so much he's of the considered to be Jesus. an error. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, interrupted you. What was your last statement? What he the things that he's considering to be errors in the Bible versus uh, versus you know what Jesus said. Well, first of all, the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the New, and Everything that happens in the Old Testament points to Christ. And we could go through passage by passage of the why of this particular passage and the why of that. Why do we sacrifice animals? I mean, what what has that got to do anything? Well, it pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. Why did things happen in the Old Testament the way they do? They pointed ultimately to what would happen in Christ Jesus. And here's, here's just a word of encouragement for you, Keith. Those type of questions, without being demeaning or condescending to your friend, are as old as creation. Because remember what the the serpent said to Eve. He said, did God really say? Mm -hmm. And that was before the fall. That was before they disobeyed God. 
And so it is not unusual, unfortunately, for many, many people to be saying, did God really say that? Because that is the first step toward disobedience. My, my commendation to you is continue to be a friend to him, show Jesus in your life, pray for him, and just see what God's Spirit can do even when you think you are powerless to do so. Because guess what? Through God, you can do anything. And guess what? God may have you there for that very reason, to be a gospel witness to him in your life and your words. Mm, wow. I'm going to be bold, Tom, because you put it in the book. But Keith, for your edification, there's a book called The Moody Handbook of Theology that does a great job of digging more into the word and how we got it. So The Moody Handbook of Theology, 877-548-3675. I knew this hour would go fast. We haven't gotten off of one I Believe statement yet. And Clay, you're in Florida. I'm going to take your question when we get back. Tom Rainer, our guest. A fabulous book. Time for us to go back and just review again the basics of our faith. The 50 cent theological word, orthodoxy. Back after this. What do Christians really believe? What do we stand for? Do we know the essentials of our faith? That's why I've chosen I Believe as this month's truth tool. Know what you believe and how to convey the truth of God's word to a hurting culture. As for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market, call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. It certainly is important to go back and check the foundation of your house. Otherwise, you have what's called settling and cracks in the walls. And when you get a crack in the wall... The howling winds can get into your house. Well, that's a great word picture of what happens when we don't go back and shore up the foundation of what we believe and why we believe it. So God bless Tom Rainer, who's the founder and CEO of Church Answers, to write a short, powerful book that really reviews the basic I believe statements of the faith. I think it's important for every Christian to do that. Number one, it builds you up personally as a follower of Jesus Christ. But number two, how do you go out, and I'm going to use the verse again from Jude, How can you possibly contend for the faith if you yourself don't know what you believe and why you believe it? That straight stick of truth is so crucial to us. So let me tell you again, formally, if you're just joining us, welcome. So glad you can download the podcast and get the first half of this conversation at our website. Click on the tab that says past programs, download it. You can listen to it in its entirety. But Tom, just to review, is founder and CEO of Church Answers, 40 years in ministry, a lifetime committed to the health and growth of the local church and its leaders. He's pastored four churches, interim pastored 10 churches, best-selling author, popular speaker, professor dean, the list goes on. And the book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. He's written many other books, but this one I think is an important book for our time. So the first statement is I Believe in the Bible. The whole book is comprised of I Believe statements, reviewing the orthodoxy, the cornerstones of our faith. We've gotten through the Bible and we've got questions on this, so I'm not moving faster than you can get your questions answered. And Clay, I'm going to keep my word. I said I'd come to you after the break. Thanks for joining us from Florida. Your question, please. Oh, thank you, Janet. I love you. Thank you for the way that you pretend for the faith every day. And Tom, God bless you for putting out such a necessary uh, material in this day and age. Uh, My question is, I'm dealing with people who are who are suggesting 
that, uh, you know, that, that certain portions of the text, if you go into the Greek, doesn't really say what the English says. And I personally find that to be very troubling because it's like, okay, 500 years of theologians are all wrong and you get it right. So my question is, what, how, do I, how do I answer that? Because I've had some people suggest that the Greek language is very exacting. Is it, you know, how, how do I contend for someone who's suggesting that I, I, I don't understand the text because I don't know the Greek? Well, first of all, I think you answered the question very well yourself when, when you said, look, we've had – it's been certainly more than even 500 years of scholars to go over the Greek text and the Hebrew text and the Aramaic text of Scripture, but particularly the Greek text. And there is nothing that has happened in the translation process from Greek to English that has weakened anything about Scripture. It has happened just the opposite with further translation and as well archaeological discoveries, we are finding that more and more the Bible is a firm and not in any way is it discounted as being anything less than true. It is difficult for me to say, okay, how do you, how do you respond to someone who basically is asking you a question that is, is wrong? It is not true that the, the Greek is being misapplied, misinterpreted, mistranslated to the English. It has been precisely so. And during that translation process, as someone who's had a bit of Greek, I don't consider myself a Greek scholar, but as someone who's had a bit of Greek and then see the Bibles that we have today, I can say with acclamation, what a great thing this has been to get it into the hands of people in their language, and it has been very accurate. So back to your question, I would, I would just simply say, you know, I, I, I think that we can really affirm that the scholars have done a good job and just continue to love on that person and pray for them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Clay, again, if I may be so bold, uh, the, Booty, the Moody Bible Commentary is superb. I hope in your personal study you've got some uh, Strong's Concordance. I hope you've got some Bible commentaries that you use. Logos is an online system that's terrific. And you can read, by the way, the subtle little differences in a word versus if you wanted the New American Standard, the NIV, the King James, the New King James. And you'll see that they all generally point, Tom, stop me if I'm wrong, generally point in the same direction with little tiny subtleties that big picture doesn't change the meaning of the verse. Am I right or wrong? Oh, you're, you're totally right. And uh, the, the translation differences are so minor, it has to do with contextual situations. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it is extremely minor. And by the way, you've mentioned Paul Hinn's book, the Moody Handbook of Theology. I was with him during the creation of that book. And mm. I just, I got to say, keep recommending that. That was one of the first theology books I ever got that was orthodox. Wow. Well, you heard it again. I'll say the name because now if you just joined us, people are going to want to know what it's called. So Paul N's book is called The Moody Book of Theology. And it's really one of those, you hear me talk often about a legacy library, leave your kids lots of things, but leave them books and leave them Absolutely. books that you've written in the margins and dated. And if the Lord said something to you in a verse, put the date down there. And if you're still alive, mom, dad, why was that verse significant at that point in your life? And you help to build that legacy into their lives. But those kinds of books are the kind you want to pass down because guess what? They never go out of date. They're always That's good so and they're always appropriate. So Clay, I thank you so much. Let me move to one. Tom, when you wrote this book, I don't know if you knew how much you were just going right to the headlines of the day. So the second I believe statement is I believe in God the Father. Let me give you two cultural examples on why we review orthodoxy and why I eschew neo-orthodoxy. So I put on my Facebook page a picture of a banner that was held outside of the United Church of Christ in California 
in rainbow colors that said, God's pronouns are they, them. After 185,000 people saw the post, and uh, I had to clean up some of the language that was posted there, I thought, my goodness, what a fight. And I doubt seriously they were referring to his triune nature. But I thought, isn't it interesting? Add to this now the Church of England that's put together a committee that's going to study the use of different pronouns in Scripture so that it will be more, quote, inclusive. Okay? All of the howling from the marketplace aside for a minute, why is it that God, who is spirit, so we love to infuse, here's another 50 cent word, the anthropomorphic nature onto God, and he's not, he's spirit, but God himself in his word, this is why I'm glad you started with I believe in the Bible, refers to himself as father. Jesus calls him father. I and my father are one. Why the masculine definition of father? God could have called himself anything in his word. He refers to himself as the father among a myriad of other names. But why father? Why father is because he wanted to model for us what a perfect father is and should be. And therefore, Mm -hmm. he called himself the father because he wanted his children to know that they could come to him as a father, as the leader, as the one who is there as the protector. He did not use other pronouns, the the she or the, the plural pronouns, because that does not describe the essence of who he is. He is the father who is love. He is the father who protects. He is the father who guides. He is the father who is a shepherd. He is the father who is unconditionally with us at all times if we trust in Christ. And so he told us that that was his pronoun, and no one else has changed it. God still is the Father. And how this got out into the cultural milieu today <laughs> of, of uh, okay, we've got to change the pronoun of God, he, he, didn't, he didn't ask us to. And so it, it's, it's really, it's, it's just one of those things that just, it blows my mind. As you, as you said early, Janet, that we're, we're kind of in the times of judges where everyone is doing as they please. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, sometimes I get confused with how we're getting pleased doing these things. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But again, I, I love the whole idea that how do you counter a bad idea with a better one? And there's no better idea than the Word of God. So uh, welcome in a non-confrontational way. I'm a great believer, and come let us reason together. You put out your argument on why you think this is what the Scripture says, and then let's dive together into the Word. Anything that gets us into the Word, I'm all for it. And if these kinds of mm. conversations get us to go back, it's not my opinion, it's not your opinion, what does the Word say, then we will have done our job. Now, you've said that God is love. What I'm so glad that you started out with this, because another one of the neo-Orthodoxy ideas out there is that we need to decouple the Old from the New Testament, that the Old Testament represents a God of wrath and judgment, but the New Testament, well, that God is more palatable. He puts children on his lap, you know, and he's meek and mild and peaceful. Uh, which tells me that you hop, skip, and jump through the New Testament, but I digress. <laughs> the, the point is, you started out his first characteristic as identifying him as love. In fact, the Bible says God is love. Why can we not—I brought it up, so I want to get your answer as a great teacher. Why can we not disconnect the Old from the New Testament? Well, the old all points to the New The old is foundational for the new. Everything that happens in the old is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the new. And when we talk about a God of wrath in the Old Testament, a God of judgment, well, quite frankly, we have to deal with that reality in the New Testament. In fact, for those who have not placed their faith in Christ and are not part of the true family of God, 
That is the result that will happen. Now, God sent a solution to that. He guided so much love that he became John 3.16, that he sent his only son to die for us so that we would not incur that wrath. He was our substitute. Sometimes we use the word propitiation, that he appeased mm-hmm. the wrath of God. But the wrath that was in the Old Testament is still present in the New Testament. But now we have a Savior to keep us from that wrath when he takes upon our sin. The Old Testament hadn't changed. The New Testament has introduced the Son of God who makes it where we can have our sins forgiven. Yeah, amen and amen. Oh, there's so many things I could say in response, but I'm coming up to break. Let me say it again, Tom. You and I are going to have to have a series of ongoing conversations. There's richness in this little book. Good. And I don't want to fly over this too quickly. So we're on the second I Believe statement, I Believe in God the Father. When we come back, I want to ask you about two words. They're cumbersome. I doubt we use them in everyday conversation, except when we're in Sunday school or talking about God and his characteristics. But omnipresent and omniscient, two very interesting words. No other mortal has those characteristics. Why is it significant that God, the Father, had those characteristics? Back after this. I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. Pretty self-descriptive. That's a new book by Tom Rayner, who's written this book, by the way. He loves the church. He wants to see it grow. He's in tune with what's happening in the church, capital C, around us. And so this man, who's a best-selling author, popular speaker, professor, dean, the list goes on and on and on, has written a very concise book that every single one of us should take the time and go back and read. Even if you think you know what you believe and why you believe it, It always helps to go back and review. A pilot goes back and reviews his instruments on a plane on a regular basis. Why? Because he wants to keep the plane flying right. That's important for you and me as well. Why do we believe, particularly when we're surrounded by a marketplace of ideas that says, as Tom said brilliantly earlier in our conversation, that old lie, as the serpent rattles his tail, did God really say that? And you can start at the beginning and so much of what we're hearing about God and Christianity and our orthodoxy is under attack right now. So two words, Tom. I love these words because... They're really only spoken in conjunction with God. So we have a God that's all-knowing, omniscient. We have a God who's present everywhere, omnipresent. The only point of reference, and I'm not being sacrilegious here, for most people is a superhero. God is so much more than a superhero, but who else would be all-knowing? Who else would be present everywhere? God tells us this is who he is. If he didn't have those two attributes, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? Well, he created space and time. And sometimes we think that that's all there is that uh, we're, in, we're in this finite world, and we, we have a finite place, and we have a finite knowledge, but he created it all, and so he is much bigger than any of this. You've got, you've got omniscience. That means, of course, omni means all. Science means knowledge or knowing. He's all knowledgeable. And we, we could start off with the cosmos. We could start off with the big picture. There is nothing in the world, nothing in the universe, nothing in creation or beyond creation that he does not have knowledge of. But then there's the personal issue. He is omniscient about the lives of Tom and Janet and the listeners mm-hmm, of this station. Mm-hmm. He knows your hurts, your hopes, your pains, your desires, and he is there for you because he knows. The omniscience is not just some theoretical type of idea that, oh, God knows everything in the created universe and even before then. He knows us. 
He knows us personally. And that blows my mind that a, that a God who created all does care that much for me. He knows all. And then he's omnipresent. You know, sometimes we think about trying to hide from the presence of God. Adam and Eve tried it. It didn't work so well. Uh, there, there is no hiding from the presence of God, but it's not a negative thing. We've got the God who is total love, the God who sent his son to die for us, the God who is all-knowing, who is with us everywhere and is with everything everywhere. I cannot explain it. I cannot, especially logically, but I can affirm it biblically. Omniscience and omnipresence, only God has those traits because anyone else would, would be God themselves. And it is magnificent in the totality of the picture, but it's also magnificent because I can personalize it for Tom Rainer or for anyone who is yeah. a follower of Christ. Yeah, exactly. To the numbers of hairs on our head doesn't get any more exactly. intimate than that. Wow, amazing. All right, here are two words again, misapplied, misunderstood, holy and good. You say God is both holy and good. I venture to say the vast majority of us don't know really what holiness is. Can you describe that to us? You do it beautifully in the book. Well, holiness comes from a word that means to be separate, to be different than. So when, when, when we say holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, or when we sing that, it means that there is something special of God. It means that he is totally set apart, that he is so different from anything else that we ascribe to him his uniqueness, his attribute, that he is totally different and worthy of worship. We exalt him because he is holy. We worship him because he is holy. We bow down before him because he's holy. He is sinless and he is perfect. Holiness can be a characteristic that is somewhat related to the human life, but not like God. We can be set apart or sanctified by some of the things we do in the power of God, but we will never be perfectly holy like God because God is ultimate perfection. God is ultimate holiness. Amen and amen. Here's an important word, and we really won't understand why we believe in the Son if we don't understand this aspect of the Father. God is righteous, you say. There's another, maybe once in a while, there's a pop song that'll use that. There was a group called the Righteous Brothers. But aside from that, <laughs> righteousness is not a word we use again very often in common parlance. And yet this is so crucial because it begins to point out who I am by knowing who he is. So talk to me about righteousness. What is it? Righteousness is an attribute, again, that only God can have, and God is the one who is totally right. So you can go back to that word right. It means that there is perfection there. There is no imperfection. But then when we begin to talk about righteousness, we also begin to see that he gives to us his righteousness. And again, that's one of those things that I think about the holy, perfect God who is totally right, totally righteous, allows me to have that righteousness. You say, how does that happen? Well, when I trusted in Christ, when I put my faith in him, he gave me the free gift of salvation as a gift of grace. And when I go before God, he is not going to see Tom Rayner in his filthy rags of behavior. He is going to see the blood of Christ, which Christ died for me, and now I come before him, and God, the perfect righteous one, sees me as righteous as well. 
That's mm -hmm. one of the most amazing things about this characteristic of God, because through his son Christ, he imputes that righteousness to us as well. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Tom, what a note to end this on. I thank you so much. I'll let the record reflect your honor. Two, I believe, statements. I believe in the Bible. I believe in God the Father. There are 13 other I believe statements here that really comprise basic Christian orthodoxy. So, Tom, I'm going to say it publicly again. You and I must get together again on a regular basis. I'd like to break all of these down because I think in a world turned upside down, going back and reviewing solid biblical orthodoxy. Uh, well, the time has come to do that because we're being taken captive, as I said at the start of our conversation, by vain and hollow philosophies. The, counter, the antidote, the countering of that is by getting immersed in the Word and finding out what the Word tells us about who we are as followers of Christ. It's a fabulous book. I hope you'll get it. Again, small, pointed, direct, necessary. I believe a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith. If you want more information, go to InTheMarketWithJanetPartial.org. You'll see a red box. It says program details and audio. Click it on. Whoop. Takes you over to the information page. Longer bio of Tom. A link to his website. And on the right-hand side, there's the book, I Believe. Very important review of who we are as followers of Christ, what we believe, and why we can believe it. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next time.